Welcome to Same Surgeon, Different Life, part of the STS Surgical Hot Topics podcast. This series focuses on demystifying cardiothoracic surgery and presenting the remarkable backstories of surgeons from a variety of backgrounds and in various career stages that have led them to become the face of CT surgery. I'm Dr. David Tom Cook, and in each episode, Dr. Tom Varghese and I will get to know more about our colleagues, the obstacles, the success stories, trade-offs, and pivotal moments that have shaped their careers as well as their personal missions. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. The program will return after a message from our sponsor. I'm Dr. Sandeep Kandar, a thoracic surgeon from Virginia Cancer Specialists, with a message about the importance of referring patients with resectable stage 1B through 3A non-small cell lung cancer to a medical oncologist consistent with national guidelines. I believe that all of these patients should be referred to a medical oncologist early in their treatment pathway. Using biopsy samples taken before or during surgery, medical oncologists should order guideline-recommended molecular testing to help inform therapy decisions. In my opinion, it is important to talk to these patients about recurrence rates after surgery, as well as molecular testing, which may impact treatment decisions for eligible patients. These conversations should happen either before surgery or shortly thereafter. Overall, a multidisciplinary team-based approach may help drive informed decisions so patients can receive the right treatment options for them. This content is sponsored by AstraZeneca. Hi, everyone. I'm your host for today's episode, Tom Varghese. One of our goals on Same Surgeon, Different Light is to showcase the amazing origin stories of leaders in the world of cardiothoracic surgery. And I think that you will enjoy today's episode as we connect with another giant in the world of thoracic surgery, Dr. Jessica Donington. Dr. Donington is Professor of Surgery and Chief of Thoracic Surgery at the University of Chicago. She, is a, she was a science geek growing up who loved dissecting frogs, enjoyed biology class, and thrived in environments that focus on science. We will deep dive into her early days as one of eight kids in her family, winning a science fair and finding her calling in medical school. Her professional career and life journey has crisscrossed the United States from Stanford to NYU and now the University of Chicago. Dr. Donington is a globally recognized expert in the management of lung cancer with leadership in practice changing clinical trials. Her research focuses in the discovery of novel biomarkers for early detection and treatment of lung cancer. She is a fierce advocate for students, trainees, and junior faculty members through her active mentorship and sponsorship. A past president of Women in Thoracic Surgery and the New York Society for Thoracic Surgery, at the time of this recording, Dr. Donington is the current president of the Western Thoracic Surgical Association. Join us as we discuss her origin story, thoughts on program building, and her insights into the forces that will impact our field in the years ahead. Dr. Jessica Donington on today's Same Surgeon, Different Light. Dr. Donington, uh, welcome to the show. Hey, I'm super excited to be here. This is a great podcast, and I'm excited to be a part of it. I didn't know I was one of the most dynamic people in CT surgery. <laughs> of course you are. We, we're sharing our secrets out there, so that's great. Um, as our listeners know, this is a series really dedicated to deep diving into the origin stories uh, of the amazing uh, leaders in the world of CT surgery, and then to reflect on a couple of burning platform issues. And so we'll go ahead and get started. Uh, Dr. Donington, tell us about your childhood. Uh, where did you grow up or where do you identify as your hometown? 
So I identify as a New Yorker, but I did spend most of my formative years in New Jersey. And I think most of us from New Jersey might consider ourselves true New Yorkers. Now, isn't there a dynamic tension between that? I think that there's a little bit of a love-hate relationship between New York and New Jersey, right? Uh, my parents didn't want to raise eight children in a three-bedroom apartment. <laughs> <laughs> wow, eight kids. That's a, that's a, that's a, a, a bundle of joy, so to speak, or lots of, lots of attention growing up, right? Uh, yeah, so I'm definitely from a big family. Um, there are seven girls and one boy, and the girls were all very close in age. We all were in school together. Um, and I do think it was, you know, it's very formative in how I think of myself and how I function. Uh, I've, since I was a kid, I've always been a member of a team. That's all the way. That's the way it only works. And where are you in the, in, in the order of kids? Where are you? Where do you land? I'm third. So, I'm third. And there is, you know, big families, there's dynamics for the top, the bottom and the middle. Um, and uh, yeah, all the brains and all the beauty live on either end and I'm not on either end. <laughs> oh, you're being way too humble. That's hilarious. <laughs> so um, you were saying that uh, there weren't any immediate relatives that were physicians. Is, is that correct? No, not at all. I really come from a family pretty much dominated by lawyers. My dad was a lawyer. Many of my sisters are lawyers. Um, but, you know, I wasn't that kid in school. I wasn't a particularly good student. And the only things I was really good at were science and math and, you know, language and reading. Those were really a struggle for me. So I think it was kind of inevitable that I migrated toward the sciences through high school and college um, and then eventually to medicine. And where uh, was that? I mean, how was that just like a gradual process? Like, where did you get the the idea of pursuing a field of medicine? I mean, was it teachers or was it classmates? How, how did you get, go into the field? I think it really happened. Um, hmm, it's a good question. You know, I I think I, I never thought I was a good student. I know I wasn't a good student. And I didn't even know I was good at science until I remember that I was in like a seventh grade science fair literally like all the Catholic schools had a science fair and or it was a school fair and they couldn't find a subject for me so they sent me to science so like here do this no one else wanted to and I won and I was like you won the science so you won the science I fair. won right. I like wow. you know all these Catholic schools and, and I was like the old, and I was like how did I win that and everyone's like because you know stuff and I was like Ooh, I do and so that was kind of the start of the mission um, got to college. I loved biology. I loved all that stuff. Um, and it was just inevitable that I went to medical school. I kind of had a period where I wanted to be a field biologist. And I spent a lot of time in college working. My mentor was a field biologist. And then I realized I didn't really like spending nights in the woods. So I needed a new job. Yeah. <laughs> and so since I couldn't pee in the woods, I went to field, I went into medicine. Yeah. Jeez, <laughs> that's hilarious. Now, my love of indoor plumbing drove me to Pennsylvania. The love of indoor plumbing drove you to the field of medicine. That's, <laughs> now, that's going to be a memorable quote from this year's <laughs> series. But, uh, but, you know, you and I have heard these stats thrown around that uh, somewhere along the lines, you know, depending on the study that you see, somewhere along the lines, there's 65 to 70 percent of those who pursue a field, uh, a career in medicine actually have a first degree relative who's, who's a physician themselves. Uh, you and I are similar in the sense that that's not us. And so the question comes, 
Um, how was your journey? You know, I mean, obviously there's the competitive process in terms of applying to medical school. And then that's once you get into medical school, you realize everybody in college and med school are, uh, everybody's smart and everybody's driven and it's com it's a competitive. Like, how did you navigate uh, that kind of that journey th through those formative years? Uh, I felt a little clueless at times. I didn't really know when I started in college that I wanted to go to medicine. So I, you know, didn't have all the classes right away that I needed and needed to catch up on them toward the end. Um, I was, for me, it was a game of denial the whole time. Like, oh no, I'm not good enough. I'm not going to do that. Oh, well, maybe, oh, I can give it a try. And so it really came to it kind of late to the fact that I actually didn't go directly from college to medical school. Cause like I said, I didn't have all my requirements before in time to apply. And I didn't really finish everything I needed until right at the time of graduation. Um, and every part of it was a little right. Like, oh, everyone's so smart. Everyone knows this. I did always feel like everyone had a better idea of what was going on than me for a really long time. And eventually you realize that everybody's clueless, even if your dad's a cardiologist. Doesn't, you're not really always ready for what med school is. And so then uh, you got to med school, obviously, certainly you at some point you realize, wait, I do belong here. Um, tell me about your finding the love for surgery. How, do, how did that come about? I think that started early. I was like the kid who wouldn't leave the anatomy lab. Like I just loved cutting up those cadavers. I loved dissecting out every part of it that I could. And I've always been someone who did things with my hands. Like since I was a kid, you know, I sew, I bake, I paint, I garden, I do things with my hands. And so that was where I really was like just in love. And I guess, I don't know how some of that like translates to anatomy besides that you're always doing things, but I really loved the three-dimensionalness of it. The fact that you could touch it, all that stuff really spoke to me. And I think it happened, you know, that just translated to surgery, I think. You know, and so was it um, your clinical rotations in your third year? Was that where you finally made the decision? Or oh, yeah, it was okay. Oh and, yeah, and I think I think we're like that. I think we go in and either we love the OR or we think it's boring. Uh, either we <laughs> love medicine rounds or we think they're boring. And I loved surgery, and I thought medicine rounds were boring. And you know, and I remember my, you know, best friend from med school was like the exact opposite. He's like, how do you love this? And I'm like, how do you not love this? And, and so uh, obviously you and I then trained in um, the, the older paradigm in the sense of going through general surgery residency and then going to CT surgery fellowship. But did you know that CT surgery was what you were thinking about when you started general surgery? Or uh, Tell me about that process. I didn't at all. I actually thought that maybe I wanted to be a breast surgeon. I kind of liked oncology. I liked the questions to be answered, the disease, you know, that there was still stuff to do in terms of science. Um, and so I thought I might be a breast surgeon. And so after my second year of general surgery, I went to the uh, NCI and did a fellowship in the surgical branch in Bethesda. It was really, really fun. I totally loved it, but I realized that I didn't like surgical oncology. There's just not enough sarcomas out there. Um, and that I didn't really like love melanoma or breast, but I did realize that lung cancer was really like a surgery that you could do and thoracic was really about oncology. And so I didn't really know that from my general surgery. I mean, in two years, you might not learn that. So when I went back 
to general surgery after my two years in Bethesda, I was like, I want to be a thoracic surgeon. And someone told me, you know, that's not a thing. I was yeah. like, what do you mean? They're like, they're like, you can't feed your family. So you're going to have to either do cardiac surgery or vascular surgery, but thoracic's not a thing. Wow. Like, so oh. somebody actually told you that. That's, that's Oh a, yeah. More than one person. More than one person. <laughs> And, and and admittedly, but Tom, it was know, the olden days. There weren't that many just yeah. isolated general thoracic surgeons. They were kind of few and far between then. Yeah. And, and I was going to comment on the fact that, you know, one of the things, that, uh, one of the many things I'm really amazed about your career is you were always trying to push the boundaries even early on in your career. Because, I, I mean, I look at after CT training and, you know, your first faculty position at Stanford. And then you went to, uh, you know, uh, New York. In all those areas, they were dominant cardiac surgical programs. And you were trying to carve this path out in terms of a relatively, you know, newer field in, in terms of thoracic surgery, correct? Right. So I started my first two jobs were definitely at places that had just powerhouse cardiac surgery. I mean, Stanford, coming out of, you know, fellowship and getting an office between Frank Hanley and Norm Shumway, it's like more than anyone could dream about. Um, it was really an impressive and uh, incredible place. But you're right, Thoracic was small. Richard White was my boss. We were growing something that hadn't really, can't say it didn't exist. Like right. thoracic surgery existed, but it was like one person always, you know? Every institute, every academic institution had one guy, that's it. Yeah. And now suddenly we were turning it into a program with three or four surgeons. That was really different. Yeah. And tell me about trying to find role models this in the early years. You know, you're carving out a pathway that's, uh, you know, even though, you, as you correctly point out, most academic institutions only have like one back then. I mean, it's way different now. But and uh, as a woman leader in a, in a, in a discipline which ha doesn't have many women leaders, uh, especially back then, how do you yeah. go about finding role models or mentors? Uh, tell us about that process. So most of my role models were men. There wasn't a lot of choice. I mean, I did have, uh, there were you know really strong female surgeons within my training program, but they were not thoracic surgeons or cardiac surgeons. Uh, but they were good role models. I had women who did a really good job at, you know, balancing family and work and, you know, were, you know, most of them were, in those days were tough as nails, you know, I feel like they probably had to be to survive and, you know, just finding that happy balance between, you know, being tough without being, you know, the B-I-T-C-H was a tough road to, to find back then. But then once I got into cardiothoracic, my mentors and role models were all men. There's no doubt about it. Um, and uh, I think it's an important concept for women to have that your role models don't have to match your gender. They, they can be men. There's no doubt about it. But you'll definitely find people who, you know, have a like mind to you or that you respect their careers, their balance, their, their way they deal with their patients and their families. And, and that's what I did. I had really great male role models and, and mentors throughout my general surgery and my thoracic training. And then in the early part of my career. Yeah. Uh, tell me about um, your current leadership position. I mean, obviously you, uh, you're the uh, section chief of uh, thoracic surgery at the University of Chicago. Uh, tell us about how 
the opportunity came about, the decision, I mean, you, as you correctly pointed out, you're a New York slash New Jersey native, <laughs> so to speak. Uh, you, you had a great career in New York, and then this opportunity arises from the New, uh, University of Chicago. Uh, walk us through the process of how the opportunity came about and then your decision-making to, to, to make the leap. Yeah, so I had been in New York for about 10 years, and it was great. NYU was a wonderful place, but I think it was pretty clear that I wasn't really going to get a leadership role there, that I was going to always kind of be in the middle of the pack. And I, I think I wanted more, and I thought I could offer more. And I had looked at a couple of jobs, but it, it would require not only for me to move away from my family, but my significant other to do the same. And he's also in medicine, and he had a good job. So I looked at some jobs that were just didn't do it. And then um, Mark Ferguson, who I had known since I was in training, uh, reached out to me at a general thoracic club meeting and said, you know, we're looking and I don't know if you'd be interested. And I had known, a, I'd known Mark for many, many years and uh, always respected the University of Chicago. I did my medical school here in Chicago at Rush. We used to come down to this beautiful campus to study. I knew about this gorgeous place. Um, so I was interested. I, and that part of it is, again, I had respect for the institution. I had friends on faculty here. I had been in Chicago before. I knew that I really liked the city uh, and I liked Mark. So that was the start. I was a little hesitant when I started, you know, because I had not been burned, but realized how hard it would be to move my significant other and, and move away from our families. And then I got here. I have like the coolest chair on the face of the earth. And it was hard to say no. Um, the department looked different than any department I ever worked in. You know, it is a very diverse group of people and it's very academic. And I just felt like I had kind of found my place and I haven't looked back. It's been amazing. And, and you've, uh, I mean, achieved so much in a short period of time. I mean, you've recruited more faculty. Uh, there, there are four of you now, uh, correct? Uh, there are four, four of us. It's a lot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's not the old days when there was just one, right? <laughs> so, uh, you know, four dedicated general thoracic surgeons, volumes growing, research is growing. Um, and and that fascinating aspect is all four of you kind of complement each other. I mean, you're not all clones. I mean, you're not exactly the same. Thoughts about so, how, how you recruited that or achieved that balance? Uh, it's very funny, actually. So our first recruit came from MGH. And one of the first things that happened when I came here was uh, we had our visiting professor. Um, we have an annual visiting professor. And it was Doug Matisson from MGH. And uh, we were walking to lunch uh, on the second day. And he looked at me and he goes, he says, Maria Luthia Madariaga. I'm like, what language are you speaking here? What did you just say? <laughs> and he goes, she belongs here. And I said, oh. And uh, she was one of the graduating fellows and he was right. But I will tell you, it was very funny. Uh, Mark Ferguson and I, you know, this is very much co-parenting here. I am not in charge. <laughs> um, and when we recruited our first recruitment, I said, what are your priorities? Yeah. And he said, I need a great academician and an excellent educator and a good surgeon. And then someone I can work with and he said, that's really good. That's what I want too, but I want them in the opposite order. I said, oh, I wow. want a good, I want someone we get along with who's a good surgeon who can educate and do academics. And he looked at me like I was brain damaged. 
she does that all the time. But um, and we and Luthie is all those things. So that was easy. It did not like we had to like choose what was the priority because <laughs> yeah. she's all of them. And she worked out great. And she complimented us in every way. And then when we went for our second recruit, he said, I think you might be right. And I said, oh my God, write the day down. He said, I might be right. Because I think having a team that fits together is so important. And the reality is, you know, we've been very fortunate and we get, we've been had applicants from great programs. And so we know that, not me, we know the academics are good. I almost feel like that's sometimes the last thing I have to worry about when I look at some of these CVs. But the ability to work with others is so important. And so that's how we've been, our last two recruits have been going. And, 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 it's, and it's interesting that you've hit on a theme that historically wasn't the cherished value, in, especially in our world of CT surgery, right? I mean, we have legendary stories of so-called giants who are just miserable human beings to be around. Um, but I think that we realize as, as a discipline that that wasn't the functional way or the best way of creating impact in this world, uh, correct? I totally agree. And maybe it's me being selfish that I have to deal with the bad personality. <laughs> but you're right. I came from really impressive programs that had some dysfunctional personalities. And to see how disruptive they were to everyone around them was tough. And so you're right. I think the ability to work with others is something that's really, I value a lot. Yeah. Um, and it might be the one thing that you can see and feel the most evidently. I think, you know, knowing if someone's a good surgeon is so hard because uh, let's face it, we're not fully developed when we graduate and that stuff probably comes in time for many of us. Absolutely. Well, I wanted to shift a little bit towards getting some thoughts on the national, international level. I mean, obviously, you've uh, championed many efforts and led efforts through the women in thoracic surgery. And at the time of this recording, you're the current president of the Western uh, Thoracic Surgical Association. Um, you know, thoughts in terms of how thoracic surgery specifically is positioning itself. I mean, this is kind of like a passion project for yourself, seeing how the cutting edge advances in lung cancer specifically have transformed the field. Where do you think our field is going uh, as we speak? So I think our field gets more and more separated from cardiac surgery every year. Um, as you know, minimally invasive procedures take over, the, the old school, I can do all of it is, is I think really going away. And that even, you know, I think we're even getting subspecialized within our own field, but, um, and within the world of, you know, thoracic oncology, there's no doubt about it that I think we are slowly migrating to that role where we are going to be the primary gatekeepers for lung cancer. I think it's going to happen. I think you know, with the new induction therapies we have, more and more people are being considered operative candidates. And I mean, it's gonna take 20 years for screening to have the impact we want. But in 20 years, a lot of patients are gonna be coming in with early stage lesions. There's no doubt about it. So I think, you know, we will become the gatekeepers. Um, I think going forward, you know, it's going to be like breast. No patient's going to just get surgery alone. It's going to be so, those are going to be few and far between. And, and we're all going to have to deal with uh, induction therapies and MIBs and MABs and all the other science coming down the road. 
And it's hard to keep up with that stuff, but like the breast surgeons, we're going to have to. Yeah. And uh, along with the way that our clinical work will change, obviously hand in hand with that, the research opportunities are going to change uh, oh, yeah. as well. What do you think are the skill sets? Like if, if there's a young trainee who's at the beginning of his or her career, like what are the, what's a piece of advice do you give to them in terms of these are the types of skill sets you really need to make a difference in the years ahead? I think it's going to get broader and broader. Um, you know, I think as we get more into the beginning of the disease and diagnosis and discovery, it's going to go beyond just, you know, molecular biology. I mean, molecular biology is always going to be great. It's cancer. Good God, if you can do molecular biology and genetics, you're awesome. But there's going to be other things like implementation sciences and things like that. You know, how do you get everybody who's supposed to be screened, screened? You know, why are some people not screened? It's going to be, you know, a lot of epigenetics. It's going to be a lot of sociology. How, you know, where do diseases occur? You know, dealing with uh, disparities in healthcare delivery. All of that stuff is, is this is where I think lung cancer is going to go. Um, and I, I think that we, we are going to be able to handle a much broader uh, group of scientists going forward. Uh, are you willing to give us any hints at what your Western Thoracic Surgical Presidential Address is going to be? Or is that still kind of top secret right now? <laughs> um, you know, I don't know. Actually, I was just in Coeur d'Alene. It was just beautiful. Um, I don't know what my presidential address. It's probably going to be around teamwork and collaboration. Like I said, I feel like I've grown up as that person. Uh, and it, what maybe what differentiates me and most from my colleagues is I think I don't have an ego, or at least it's hidden under a couple layers. Um, but I did get my uh, postgraduate speaker, so I'm pretty excited about oh, that. Oh, good. Well, we're, we're all excited. I mean, I definitely will be there in the front rows. <laughs> Look, looking forward to being there as well. Um, kind of your final thoughts in terms of, um, you know, women leaders specifically have made progress. You know, we've, we've built up the pipeline. Yeah, as you and I both know, there's a slight majority of uh, uh, women, uh, you know, hires compared to men in medical school classes right now. We haven't quite made the leap towards in thoracic surgery. I mean, depending on the stats you look at, in the, in the practicing workforce right now, it's about eight or 10% uh, of uh, practicing thoracic surgeons are, are women. Thoughts in terms of, uh, are we doing enough? Do we need to do more? Like, how do, how do we change the dynamic to ensure that the best and brightest are always coming into our field? I think cardiothoracic surgery in general as a field has taken diversification, at least in terms of gender, very seriously. Um, and I don't know whether that was thrust upon them and they had no choice or there were just some key, I really think there were just key leaders who realized it was essential that you can't, you can't leave half of the best and brightest at the doorstep and think that you're going to have a great workforce. And I do believe there are leaders who do believe that our workforce should look like our patients to really do the job we need to do. So I think we've done a lot. I think this current wave, you know, this is like the year of women in terms of leadership, you know, with women leading the Eastern, the Western, the Canadian, the European, the AATS, the SDS. I think that kind of visibility really makes a huge difference, huge. It's just that ability to see 
you know, I always thought, you know, it was hard to sometimes see yourself. Um, and I think people do need to see themselves. You, you can't go to a meeting and realize you're the only woman in the room and feel like you belong. So, and that's happened in my career more than once. So I think that visibility really does matter. Um, I think, you know, the road in cardiac surgery has been way harder than the road in thoracic. Um, you know, we had a lot of great early mentors and it made a huge difference in, you know, a generation of us going into this field. We have a ways to go in cardiac. It's, you know, it's tougher for a lot of reasons. And it, you know, a lot of it might be coming out of where the referrals come from also. So I think that's where we really need the push. Luckily, there are some super strong female junior faculty who have, you know, chosen cardiac and they are powerhouses. And there are definitely women in there who can, who can change the future. Uh, you mentioned earlier in our interview that um, potentially elements of imposter syndrome, that it, it took you a while to realize that you truly belong, um, that you were just as smart or even smarter than the people around you, and that you had all the skill sets available. Um, if somebody who's early on in their career and, and they have these elements, or even mid-career or later on in, in, in imposter syndrome, uh, there are elements that become crippling. Your advice in terms of how to overcome that? I think you just have to, I think you need to find some good mentors. You need to find people to talk to who will be honest with you, you know? And I think, you know, there are people who maybe surgery is not the best choice for them and, and maybe their imposter syndrome isn't so imposturing. But I mean, I think for more women, especially, they think they can't do it, but I think they need mentors who tell them, who, who are honest with them about what their skill set is and that they can do it. And I think they also, I've had mentors who have also told me to toughen up. Hey, grow up. If you want to do this, you got to do it. Stop questioning yourself and move forward. Um, so I, that would be my best recommendation. But yes, you can't, you can't, you have to stop comparing yourself to the person next to you who looks like they have it under control. The chances are they don't. <laughs> They don't. And, <laughs> and of course, it's it's amazing you made that comment because I, I would suspect that especially in the modern era of social media, that particular aspect is is worse because people have to realize we're seeing curated examples from you're just seeing slices of uh, someone in someone's life. You're not seeing the whole complete picture of what he or she's going not at all. And I, I and while I love social media for certain reasons, that portion of it is really not good. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, uh, Dr. Donnick, I mean, you and I have known each other over the decades. I mean, uh, for full disclosure to the audience, uh, Jessica is a cherished friend. So I think that uh, in, in the final moments we have, um, any last uh, pearls of wisdom uh, for, for our listeners, uh, things that really have resonated with you and continue to drive you forward? So I think in terms of my career and how I got to where I am, my one pearl of wisdom is, uh, I would always say about my family, I wasn't the smartest, I wasn't the prettiest, I wasn't the most athletic, I was the most stubborn. My career, I am where I am based upon perseverance. I wanted it, I put my head down, I did the work, and I just kept going. And if it's what you want, that's my answer to you. Like I said, I, I may not be as smart as the guy next to me, but I can work as hard. And I think that is gets you a long way in a field like surgery. Uh, you don't have to be the smartest to be a really good surgeon. You have to, you know, you have to want to work hard. And I think that's a big part of it. 
in terms of my success now, it is a little bit about being egoless. It's about thinking about my team first and my team, you know, ahead of what I want for my career is what's best for the career of my juniors. And I think amazing how thinking about that has actually only been my career. <laughs> Better. Yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> The dean could care less about me, but if my junior does something great, they get a grant, suddenly I look like I'm awesome. <laughs> like, okay. But I think that's really important for people, you know, early in their leadership career to recognize that we are all viewed to those below us. And the better you can make that person not look, but the more success that person has, the greater your success will be. Well. Dr. Jessica Dunnington, uh, thank you on behalf of all of us. Uh, you're doing amazing work. We're looking forward to your presidential address at the Western Thoracic Surgical Association. Uh, we're grateful that you took the time today to join us on this episode of Same Surgeon, uh, Different Life. Uh, thanks so much, Jessica. This has been Same Surgeon, Different Life, a podcast brought to you by the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, please rate it five stars and let your friends, trainees, and colleagues know about it. On social media, you can use the hashtag, the face of CT surgery. More information about the Society of Thoracic Surgeons is available online at sts.org.